I'm going to begin this message as you're turning to Acts 18, the very end of Acts 18. I want to read a story to you. It, it, it's a few minutes long. It's not going to bore you, but I want you to, as you're turning to Acts 18, I want you to listen, okay? The only person Monica loved more than her son was her God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When her son was a baby, she used to sing hymns to him while she was breastfeeding him. She dedicated him to the Lord and prayed he would be a blessing to the kingdom of God. Monica's faith and love were well known throughout the Christian community in her city. And when her son grew up, his brilliance was equally well known. But so was his immorality and hostility toward God. The young man had become a rhetoric professor. He had given himself over to the full-time occupation of drunkenness, sexual immorality, and turning people away from the one true God with his philosophical speculations. Even the most highly trained Christian intellectuals could make no headway with Monica's son. Monica had come close to utter despair several times. Maybe some of you moms praying for your kids, you have been there. Uh, utter despair several times, but she refused to give up. She continued to labor in prayer for the salvation of her son. When her son was 19 years of age, he's already a professor of rhetoric. As, when her son was 19 years of age, Monica had a dream. In this dream, she and her son were walking hand in hand together in heaven. She knew God was telling her through the dream that he would save him, her immoral son and that the dream encouraged her to intensify her prayers. A year went by, then another year, and another. Instead of her son growing closer to God, he seemed to be growing farther away. He had gotten more intellectual, excuse me, intelligent, more arrogant, and more committed to evil than ever before. A famous, respected, and wise church leader visited Monica City to conduct some religious services there. Because Monica was so highly thought of among the Christians in her city, it was not difficult for her to obtain a private meeting with the church leader. She told him of her prayers for her son and that his condition had actually worsened. She implored him to speak with her son, but he refused. He knew any attempt on his part to persuade Monica's son to repent would only serve to harden his heart. How will my son ever be saved? Monica sobbed. The wise old man looked up, excuse me, looked down on Monica's tear-stained face with affection. Woman, he said, it is impossible for the son of those tears to perish. The interview was over. Monica was encouraged by those words in the same way she had been encouraged by her dream years earlier. With renewed zeal, she continued to do the, the only thing she could do. She prayed. Nine years after Monica's dream, her son was sitting in a garden, still an unbeliever, when he heard an audible voice speak the words, take it and read, take it and read, over and over in a sing-song voice of a child's nursery song. At first, he thought it was a vo the voice must be from some children playing nearby, but there were no children, and he had never heard this child's song before. His, he sensed the voice was a divine command from heaven to open the scriptures and read. Monica's son took the Bible and his eyes fell in Romans 13, 13 to 14. This is what it says. Let us behave decently 
as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the cravings of the sinful nature. The son's heart was miraculously transformed. He would no longer be known as Monica's immoral son. Instead, he would go down in history as St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians and champions of the faith in the entire history of the church. When Monica came close to despair, God gave her a dream to encourage her to keep praying. When she came to another low point, she gave her a prophetic word from a bishop of the church. And when the time was right, in his eyes, God the Father sent his audible voice to the rebellious Augustine and opened his heart through the words of Scripture. In the fourth century, God was still speaking through dreams, prophetic words, his audible voice, and the words of Holy Scripture. You see, the point of why we're even going through this series is because I believe that God is purposefully looking for an empowered people. And that power is not going to come from within you. When when we're talking about this power, don't look inward and say, wow, I've got a lot to grow in, or, or wow, I've got to study the Bible more, or wow, I've got to acquire more skills and more giftings, and I've got to really persevere in, in learning and growing. The point is very simply that this power is, doesn't originate in us, church. This power comes from God as he pours it out upon his people to the end that God would use them to proclaim Christ, that God would use Use them to encourage one another that the kingdom of God would come equally on earth as it is now in heaven. That is God's goal. That is why God is looking for an empowered people. Church, I want to tell you right now, whenever I look at my own abilities, I am dismally dismayed. And I cry out to God, please, whatever it is, witnessing to a friend at work or or my neighbor or, or trying to preach a sermon. I say, God, I am completely inadequate in and of this man of of himself, and I need you. And that needs to be our prayer, church. So as we're looking at this next chapter, chapter, a little bit of 18, our focus is going to be on 19, actually. I want us to be continuing to ask this question as we've been asking it with chapters 2, 8, 9, 10, and and now this one, 19. God, how do you give your spirit How might I walk in this baptism in the Spirit so that my life would look like this? So that my life would radiate God's truth and power? How can I live in this? I believe that Luke's intention... In writing this letter, remember, it's the second letter that he has written to Theophilus. His first letter, we find in the third book of the New Testament, the gospel according to Luke. It was addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus. It's a letter, but it's a book. How many of you have ever written a letter that had 24 chapters? He now writes another letter to outdo the first, and this one's 28 chapters. We call it a book. And as we read through this book, we find that Luke's intention, 
is that the Spirit has come to empower a people in reaching, a, in reaching a, or highly impacting a dead, lost world. That, that he, he truly is wanting, and, and I'm reflecting back on what we looked at, I believe it was last week, for us to stop living and waiting in ankle-deep or knee-deep or waist-deep water. But he is actually calling us through this entire book to seek to swim in that raging river that cannot be crossed in Ezekiel 47. And so this is an invitation. And he was looking for a spirit-empowered people that the spirit would be poured out upon them, that they would be receive power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so he gives us five very clear examples of how this was done in the early church with the express challenge that this is the way that God is going to want to do it throughout history. Acts is not a closed book to us, church. It is an open book, an open invitation And when we're done, we're going to look at some conclusions that we can draw from Luke's writing and discerning what his intent is then. So I just want to ask you, church, do you want this? Do you want this? Is this something that is burdening your heart that God would want for you to have if you don't have it? And I'm going to suggest to you that if this is what you want, God is desiring for you to have it. In Acts 2, 17 to 18, it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Just like the way God used in bringing St. Augustine, well, then Augustine, to himself. Even on servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. In what days, church? Just simply the days of the first few decades of the early church after Jesus was de- had died and rose from the dead? Or in those days, meaning today included, I'm going to suggest to you the last days. We are living in those last days from the, the, pen- from the day of Pentecost or the resurrection until Jesus comes back. This is for us. So with that in mind, and as there's something I believe that's stirring in us, God, this is what I want. I want us to look now at our passage, Acts 18, starting with verse 23. Now, before I start reading, please understand, Paul has just finished up his second missionary journey. He met in Corinth, which is all the way over there in Greece. He met in Corinth a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. He was there for a year and a half, and then he proceeds back to Antioch and Jerusalem but he makes a pit stop in Ephesus, which is about 30 miles upstream in what's present-day Turkey. He drops off Priscilla and Aquila, and then he proceeds to to Caesarea, goes down to Jerusalem, and then back up to Antioch. Now we begin Paul's third missionary journey, and we are focusing now, or Luke is focusing on Paul. And this is what he says, verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from one place to another throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24, meanwhile. I want you to underline that word, meanwhile. We're going to come back to it a little bit later in the message today. 
Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which would be Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, referring to Jesus the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor or fervent in spirit, it says, and taught about Jesus accurately. He taught about Jesus accurately. He began, excuse me, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. That would be through the interior of present-day Turkey. And he arrived at Ephesus fairly close to the west coast. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. The, excuse me, there were about 12 men in all. I would have to say that maybe apart from Acts chapter two, there is no other chapter in the book of Acts that is more controversial than this one. When we are talking about receiving the Spirit, this chapter garners more focus and more attention, perhaps even more so than chapter two. There is so much debate. Not only is there so much discussion about on this chapter, rather, I would venture to say that in no other chapter will you find a person's bias entering into their understanding. Now, I say that with tremendous humility because we are about to try to understand this chapter. And I do not want to assume that I don't come with this, to this chapter with, without bias. I know I do. Probably every single one of you do. So our job is cut out for us. We want, as hard as we can, to set aside our bias to, as we are looking at this, which would be fair, now we're embarking on this last chapter that we're, or last spirit reception event, and we are asking these questions that we have up here concerning prayer, the hands, bat, water baptism, is there a delay, and what is the evidence? And I want us, that you, this is not a theological lesson this morning. I think you're going to learn some good Bible truths, but that cannot be my goal, because we never look at the Bible just for information. We look to the Bible for transformation. And so that is why we are doing this. We're going to answer some questions along the way. I hope we will. 
as unbiased as we can coming to the text to answer those questions. But our bottom line question has got to be, so what? God, what are you saying to me? How can I live like this? So we find in this text that Paul has begun his third missionary journey. He is visiting churches in Phrygia and Galatia, and we learned about those in his first missionary journey. He's strengthening and encouraging them. And now finally, see, his second missionary journey, he wanted to go right to Ephesus, Ephesus, it appears, but the Spirit of God said, nothing doing. So we went north. He was going to go into Bithynia, and, and the Spirit of God said, nope. So he went over to Troas, and there he had a dream, Acts 16, Man from Macedonia saying, please come over here. The Spirit of God at every turn leading him. But he didn't go to Ephesus. Now he does. Ephesus is a tremendous crossroads in Roman culture. It's where they worship the goddess Diana. Not to get into why they did this, pretty strange little background story with that, but to say that Ephesus was a crossroads of trade and culture. It even says that so powerfully did Paul preach the gospel, so many people coming to Christ, it says this. It says that everyone living in that region, that is the region of what's called Asia, not Asia where China and so on is, but this Asia, the term that's used back then, in present-day Turkey, they all heard the gospel. That's pretty significant. And so as we, as Paul is now coming to this place where he is about to stay for three years, he encounters immediately some disciples. Now, let me just say this. As we are looking at this chapter, and again, as hard as we can, trying not to be biased and import our personal perspective so that it overlays our view of chapter 19 here in answering these questions... We have got to realize something. What is Luke's perspective here? What is, his, what is his intent? Because we can read anything we want into these passages. We're only concerned, Luke, what are you trying to show us? And he shows us something very significant from the very beginning as he introduces 12 men from Ephesus as some disciples. What does he mean by this? Some people would say, well, he's just simply saying that they're disciples of John. After all, they'd only received John's baptism. They hadn't been baptized into Jesus' name. So some would say they're disciples of John. Others would say, well, no, they're not disciples of John, and therefore meaning they had not come to faith in Christ. So Paul is encountering disciples of John who don't believe in Jesus, so they're not even saved. Others would say, well, Luke is using this term disciples to mean false disciples. They think they're disciples, but they're really not because they haven't received the Spirit and they haven't been baptized into water. That's the second understanding. I'm going to suggest a completely different perspective, and I'm going to say it this way. Luke purposely introduces them this way so that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt what type of men these are. Let me just share with you. This word disciple, or disciples in the plural, is found 30 times in Luke's 
letter to Theophilus in the book of Acts. He uses it even more in his gospel. In the letter to Theophilus, in his book of Acts, he uses it 30 times. Only one time is it qualified with the phrase of the Lord, meaning disciples of Jesus. One other time, it's qualified by of him, referring to Paul. They're disciples of Jesus, don't get me wrong, but Paul, in preaching the gospel, won them to Jesus. So they are still disciples of Jesus. So that means 28 times they, this word disciple or disciples stands alone, unqualified. And I want to ask you, are we supposed to kind of do, we have no idea what type of disciples these, these people are? 28 times in the book of Acts? I'm going to encourage you, look up that word disciples. Here's what you're going to find. Every single one of those, Luke unequivocally tells us, demonstrates to us that they are disciples of Jesus. There is no exception. So here's what we conclude. The word disciples in the book of Acts never means anything other than disciples of Jesus. When you look at his gospel, he uses the word disciple even more. There we find disciples of John and disciples of the Pharisees and disciples of Jesus. But here's what else you notice. Every time it's not qualified and just as disciples, Luke always shows us that they are disciples of Jesus. The evidence is overwhelming as, as we are looking at how Luke uses this term disciple, mathetes. He always means disciples of Jesus, unqualified. This word does not say disciples of John. It does not say disciples of anyone else, but just disciples. In all fairness to Luke's intention in how he uses this word, we are immediately captivated with this thought, these are disciples of Jesus. They are not disciples of anyone else. Are they false disciples? Luke never uses that phrase. He never suggests that when he uses that term disciples that they're false disciples. But don't get me wrong. As you go through the book of Acts, you'll find at least three times in which Luke introduces a person to the reader that seems like even though they call themselves Christians, yeah, they probably aren't. Let me just give you an example. In chapter 5, verse 1, do you remember Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied to Peter and to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, they didn't live too long after that. Ananias is introduced to us not as a disciple. He's introduced by Luke, chapter 5, verse 1, as a man named Ananias. He was part of the Christian community, but he's a man of questionable character. He is probably not a Christian, though we don't know for sure. In chapter 15, verse 1, we're introduced to some men who are Judaizers. They say they believe in Jesus, but they say, for you to be saved, not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised. And they created such a stir in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are teaching. Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and say, hey, guys, apostles, elders of the church of Jesus, we got to resolve this question because Scripture is clear. You're only, you, you only need to believe in Jesus, and you do not need to be circumcised. And so they settle it. You know how those men are introduced to us? 
Luke tells us, not some disciples, he says, some men. If you were to skip over to chapter 20, verse 30, this is where Paul, after this, of course, because at chapter 20, he comes to Ephesus and several elders of Ephesus gather and he is kind of giving his last words before he heads off to Jerusalem. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, you remember he's arrested. He is giving this challenge to the elders. And this is what he says. He says, savage wolves are going to come in from among you. They're going to be among you, savage wolves. They're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Do you know how he speaks about them? Does he use the term disciple? Actually, the opposite. He says, these men will come in and their purpose will be to drag away disciples after him. So how does Luke recognize people who are of a questionable character and may not be Christians at all? Some men, a man. He never uses the word disciple. So my point is this. Luke's intention from the very beginning to clear up any question in reading this, because maybe he's thinking, as I talk about this, maybe they're not going to quite get it. So I'm just going to lay it out for them. Hey, church, Theophilus, these guys are already born again. These guys are already followers of Jesus Christ. They are already Christians, just so that you know, some disciples. Can I ask you a question before we go any further? And, and, and as you maybe have read or been reading through this book of Acts, and, you're, and there's something inside of you that's saying, man, that's what I want. I, I want to live like that. I want to ask you this. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? There, there are times in which when I'm talking with people and, and I'm trying to reach out to them and, and share the gospel if I can, and sometimes I, I just simply... Open up the discussion with this simple question. Are you a Christian? And I can't tell you how many times people have said, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so can I ask you this? Do you follow Jesus? I cannot tell you how many of those people who said, yes, I'm a Christian, look down and kind of just, well, yeah, no, not, no, not really. I, no, I, I don't. I don't. I don't follow Jesus. And I pause and, and I say, can I just be, and I'm, I'm trying really gracious, trying to be very gracious here. And I say, can I just bring something to your attention? But Because you just told me that you're a Christian, which means someone who is following Jesus, but then you just told me you don't follow Jesus. I'm going to challenge you that if you're not following Jesus, that maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't truly believed in Jesus. You see, a Christian is a follower of Jesus. The word disciple means follower, a learner. Learning from Jesus and following him, following no other. And so I'm going to encourage you, if we are going to be a disciple of Jesus and we are going to be baptized in his spirit, then we need to be disciples. We need to be following Jesus Christ. That must be our chief goal. That must be the first T we cross and the first I we dot.
There's a song I grew up singing. It goes all the way back to the 70s, and it says, I have decided to follow Jesus. You remember this? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Thank you for joining me. It made it sound a whole lot better. But the truth is, if you're going to follow Jesus, there's no turning back. Who would put his hand to the plow, Jesus says, and then stop? Some passerby would say, dude, you like half plowed your field. What's up with this? Oh, I just got tired. I'll do it next year. Next year is too late. Put your hand to the plow and keep going, dude. Keep pushing forward. Get the job done. Some of us, we get weary. And I get it. We just want to give up. But disciples of Jesus, because the Spirit of God is in them, whether he's empowering them as we're going to be looking at or not, the Spirit of God is in them, and he is calling them, pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Disciple of Jesus, I want to challenge you. Don't turn back. Keep your hand to the plow. Keep, when you're plowing, you got to focus straight forward, not directly in front of you. Directly in front of you are all of your problems. They're the things that are going to distract you. They're the things that are going to keep you focused on how bad you think your life is. Because sometimes we go through hard difficulties in the present, but the, the plowman looks ahead to a point at the end of the row, and that's where he focuses. That's where he's going. Keep your focus, church. Disciple of Jesus, don't look back. Keep focused on Jesus. Amen? When Paul encounters these disciples, he apparently has been talking with them. He doesn't just walk up to them and assume something. He has been in a conversation, and no doubt they talk about having faith in Jesus. So he then asks them. You see, it's that they had faith in Jesus. Not just faith, faith in Jesus. So he asks them, so did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Here, here's how much bias people bring to the text. People, and, and, and I'm not going to get into this. I'm just going to kind of prick your ear a little bit. They would say this word, when, is the proper way to translate it. Now, the King James, some of the older versions, they say since you believed or after you believed. When you believed gives the sense of as soon as you believed, you received the Spirit. But did you receive the Spirit after you believed? After can mean maybe a long time after. I'm going to suggest to you that's actually the case here. But others would say, nope, that's not. There's a grammar rule that says that, but, and I'm not going to get into the rule. But here's what it, 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 you can just, if you want, you can read all about it. I hardly think you will. But the truth is you come away realizing this is not a grammar rule at all. This is men, theologians, bringing their bias to the text and demanding we translate it when. Because Paul apparently believes that you receive the Spirit as Luke uses that phrase, immediately upon believing. And that's not what Paul is saying. Did you receive the Spirit since you believed? 
sometime after you believe. And that's the simple, that's the simple truth of what's going on here. Setting our biases aside, here's what I want to do. I want to simply ask, what is the nature of Paul's question? Look at his question there. Look at it again. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Now, if I believe that you received the Spirit immediately upon believing, I am going to see this question as a theological question. So, when you believed, did you receive the Spirit? How is someone going to know if they received the Spirit or not? How would you know? If, if someone walked up to you and asked, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? You might say, well, um, hang, on, hang on one second. I'm going to look in the book of Romans here. Uh, here's the verse. Yes. Uh, the answer to your question is yes, I did receive. Apparently, that's what the Bible says. I received the Spirit when I believed. Well, instead, if you're not getting this, let me just, instead of saying receive the Spirit, let's say when you were saved, okay? Were you saved when you believed? Well, yes. How do you know? Because the Bible tells me so. See, that is a question that's looking for a theological answer. So let's use a different one. Wash your sins away. Paul could have done, then said, and that is if we believe that you receive the Spirit, as, as Luke is wanting us to understand receive the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? If that always happens at conversion, he could, he could also have used the phrase, wash your sins away. So let me, let's insert that. Were your sins washed away when you believed? See, that's a question, but it's looking for a theological answer. Church, this is not a question on the, these 12 Ephesians men, fi, fi, men's final exam of Christianity 101. It's just not. How would they know if they had received the Spirit? Let me tell you how they know. If you got to verse 7, and then Paul asked them that question, so did you receive the Spirit sometime after you believed? They would say, absolutely. And I want to ask you, if we, I just read it to you. How would they have known? I just felt this confirmation in my spirit, or I just felt the burden of my sins being lifted. Now, this happens with some people in their conversion. There's an emotional experience. I believe Paul is looking for an, an experiential answer and not a theological answer. There is truly something hap that happened to the Ephesians. If you've received the spirit, you're going to know it, not by turning to Romans 8 which, by the way, hadn't been written yet. You're not going to know it by giving some theological answer. That's not what Paul's looking for. He is, he is wanting, did you experience the Holy Spirit? So if we he were to ask that question, by chapter, by, at, at verse 7, they would say yes. And he would say, really, awesome. How do you know that you would receive the Spirit? Because I spoke in tongues and prophesied. You see, he is looking for an experiential answer. He is not looking for a theological answer. If we were to look at Galatians chapter 3, because people say, well, Mike, hang on a second. Paul is using that phrase, receive the Spirit, not Luke. It, it, Paul's asking the question, receive the Spirit. But you see, we have, we've, we've covered this. Remember, Paul uses this phrase, receive the Spirit, in different ways. 
at conversion with regeneration, the washing away of sins, the um, being adopted into the family of God, receiving an inheritance. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. But he also uses it with regard to the power of the Spirit, just like Luke. In Galatians 3, verses 2 through 5, he asked them, so did you, when you received this, he asked them, when you received the Spirit, did you do so by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And it's in the past tense. He's talking about when they came to Christ and when they were converted. Then he talks about the Holy Spirit in the next verse and how the Spirit is sanctifying them. In verse 5, this is what he says. He says, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you believe what you heard, excuse me, because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Notice it's in the present tense. Paul is penning the letter to the Galatians, and he uses the present tense. Does God give you his spirit? Today, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you? Those miracles are not at the hands of Paul, and they are not receiving the spirit because he's preaching. He's writing his letter at that moment. At that moment, God is giving them the spirit and doing miracles among them because many of them are being baptized in the spirit and they are the ones doing the miracles. The spirit of God is working through them and they are operating in these supernatural gifts. Not Paul. This is not miracles that Paul did that confirmed the gospel. This is miracles that is confirming the very fact that they've been baptized in the spirit and the Spirit of God is empowering them in this way. Paul is using, you know, if God gives his spirit, what are we doing? We are receiving the spirit. If you were to look in Acts chapter 8, he actually used, you know, they laid, apostles laid hands on him and they received the spirit. Very next verse. And Simon saw that the spirit of God was given at the apostles' hands. God giving his spirit us receiving the Spirit, the same thing. I'm going to suggest to you, Paul uses the phrase, receive the Spirit, and what's happening there, even in the empowering work of the Spirit. I could have Madeline come up here, and she could pick up that acoustic guitar, and she could pick it and play it, and it would sound gorgeous. That would be like Paul, as he's playing all 12 strings about the Spirit reception. But Luke is a little bit more like Brian. Thank you for walking in just now, Brian. Brian is our bass player. I know he's got four strings on his bass, but to be honest with you, they all sound to me like the same string. So here's my illustration. Brian is playing one string. It's that bass string. And I tell you what, he can get some pretty good licks in. And it sounds awesome. Madeline, when she's playing that 12-string guitar, it sounds awesome. Paul, when he's talking about the reception, he's playing all six strings. Luke, he chooses one string, one string. And I'm going to lay a challenge. If, if, if you don't believe me, what I'm saying, look, look up in your concordance, spirit, and how it's used throughout the entire book of Acts. The only ministry of the spirit that, that Luke ever associates with the spirit, any ministry, it is the empowerment of the spirit that God has raised up a prophetic people that he speaks to and speaks through and does miracles through. 
That is the charismatic community, if you will. That is the spirit-empowered, spirit-gifted body of Christ. Luke only talks, Luke knows about regeneration. Luke knows about the washing away of sins, but he never attributes it to the spirit. I'm just simply saying, he's aware of what Paul's writing. He's listened to Paul playing the six-string six string guitar. He just likes the bass, that's all. He likes playing that one string. Now, I used an illustration before of that wave, and Paul has this aerial view, and he sees that wave coming in, and as soon as that wave, and it's in Hawaii, wherever they've got the pipeline, super cool. I love surfing. Surfing is such a skilled sport. I love it. It's beautiful. I've never surfed. The only time I've tried surfing, I got up on the board, and I immediately fell off. I tried it about 10 times, and I gave up. I said, I just can't do it. But these guys, as soon as the wave reaches this certain level, certain power, the, the surfer mounts his surfboard and he starts riding that, that wave in. That wave is the reception of the spirit. And he rides it all the way in. When it reaches a certain point at the shore, you see the wave starting to curl under. And that's called the pipeline. And it is super, they ride it at the very mouth of the pipeline. You can even see them. I love it when they drag their hand in the water. That is just so cool. And it, it's beautiful. And you want to make sure, though, that you don't get caught in that wave when it crashes down because it is absolutely thunderous and powerful, and it can drown you. It can keep you under that long. So you, that's not where you want to have your crash on the wave. Paul sees the wave coming in, and he has this aerial view. However, Luke is standing on the seashore, and he sees the, the surfer riding this one wave called the pipeline. It's powerful and thunderous, and that's what he describes. Five times in the book of Acts, I'm calling them spirit reception events, whatever you want to call them, and he uses these to substantiate this fact. You, Theophilus, you are called to be an empowered believer in Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple? then be empowered by his spirit. That is his point. I believe that God works miracles today. God didn't just do it in the book of Acts. He raised up a charismatic, that is charismatic comes from the word spiritual gift, a spiritually gifted people that are empowered by his spirit to do miracles to prophesy through them. I want to share a story with you. And, and I say he's wanting to do it in our day. Some people say, well, God just doesn't do that anymore. I'm going to choose a man from their ranks within the Reformed tradition. He is a Scottish reformer. His name is John Welsh. John Welsh, as a young man, In about 1600 A.D., he had built a relationship with a young man, and this young man was an avid follower of Jesus Christ. It says the most famous incident in Walsh's life occurred while a godly young man, the heir of Lord, I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, Ockeltree, make it that what you will, captain of the castle of Edinburgh, he was staying at Welsh's house. Walsh is a, a reformer, a Scottish reformer, godly man. This young man, the uh, Lord Ockeltree, fell sick there and after a long illness, died. 
Welsh had great affection for the man and was so grieved by his death that he would not leave the young man's body. After 12 hours, some friends brought a coffin and attempted to put the body into it. Welsh persuaded them to wait. He stayed with the body a a full 24 hours, praying and lamenting the man's death. Again, they attempted to put the body into a coffin, but he refused to let them. They came again 36 hours after the death of the young man, now angry with Welsh. He begged them to wait 12 more hours, but after 48 hours, Welsh still refused to give up the body. Guys, what's going on here? At this point, Welsh's friends were beside themselves. They could not understand his strange behavior. Perhaps he thought the young man had not really died, but had succumbed to some kind of epileptic fit. So the friends summoned physicians to the room in order to prove to Welsh that the young man was truly dead. With their instruments, they pinched the body of the young man in various places and even, get a load of this, even twisted a bowstring about the corpse's head with great force. No nerve in the body of the corpse responded at all to these measures. The physicians pronounced him dead. One last time, Welsh persuaded both friends and physicians to step in the next room for an hour or two. Welsh fell down on the floor beside the body and cried to God with all of his strength. The dead man opened his eyes and cried out to Welsh in 1600, Oh, sir, I am all whole, but my head and my legs. He was restored to life and healed of his long sickness. The only ill effects he suffered were his legs where he'd been pinched by the physicians and around his head where they had twisted the bowstring. Later, this young man became Lord Castle Stewart, the lord of a great estate in Ireland. Wow. Church, I'm not reading some fairy tale to you. This is well documented. John Knox, one of the Scottish reformers, he too observed prophetic words and miracles abundantly, and he writes about these. This is for us, this is for you as Jesus' spirit-empowered people. He invites you, he invites us to walk in the very same types of miracles that we read about in the book of Acts. This is for you. Luke is saying to Theophilus, Theophilus, this that I'm writing, it's for you. Can you embrace it? Can you seek to live in it? Walk in it. Now, we come now to this last point that I want to make. There is a struggle amongst theologians because they say, well, these guys obviously aren't disciples, regardless of what Luke tells us, because they have only received John's baptism. They've not been baptized into Jesus' name. And because they've only been baptized with John's baptism, who pointed to Jesus, they apparently don't believe in Jesus because they've not been Christian baptized. Now, did you get that argument? If they've not been baptized into Jesus, it's because they don't believe in Jesus, so these are unbelievers. Now, I kind of tricked you a little bit. When, we, when I started off reading, I didn't start in chapter 19, verse 1. I started where? Back in 18, talking about who? Tell me his name. Look there in the Apollos. Luke is such a good writer. When he is focused, he is focused. You can't deter this guy. He's like a little bulldog. 
little Rottweiler. When he gets a chomp into you, man, he does not let go. And he's, when he's writing about Paul, he does not get distracted. And yet when Paul is beginning his third missionary journey, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Luke, where are you going with this, dude? You have not done this and in your entire letter. And are you, what's distracting you? What do you, what, what, why do we need to know about Apollos? We do know that a Priscilla and Aquila that he had just dropped off in Ephesus ministered to them. But why? Why would Luke introduce Apollos to us? Because when we come to these Ephesian leaders, excuse me, these Ephesian men, they are cut out of the same theological cloth, if you will, that Apollos is. Apollos taught about Jesus accurately. God so loved the world. He gave his one. These are Jesus' words that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have what church? Everlasting life. We're challenged to do what then? Believe in Jesus. Apollos taught that accurately. Apollos was a believer in Jesus, but he had only received John's baptism. Luke's intention then, he, it, it's not several chapters removed. He introduces Apollos to us, and immediately we find disciples, 12 of them who look just like Apollos. Maybe they're not great speakers like Apollos. As a matter of fact, I'm sure they weren't. Apollos was amazing, apparently. When he went to Corinth, he wowed the people there. Look, read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll find out. Luke's intention was to tell us, you know what, Apollos, he believed in Jesus. He was fervent in spirit but he only had received John's baptism. Uh, here's my question. Where are we going with this? If we're going to say that if you've not been Christian baptized, therefore you don't believe in Jesus and you're an unbeliever, are you trying to tell us then that you have to be baptized to be saved? And Scripture does not say that anywhere. It does not say that. L let me ask you this. What would you think... There's a gentleman in my family tree. His name is A.T. Pearson. A.T. Pearson was a Presbyterian minister. The guy is 60 years old. And by the way, Presbyterians believe in infant baptism and not what's commonly called believer's baptism, which I believe Scripture clearly teaches. Excuse me, A.T. Pearson. Clearly teaches. So here is a man, 60 years of age. He had been baptized as an infant, teaches and preaches this. He steps behind the pulpit at Metropolitan Church, a very small church pastored by Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, of about 10,000. He's there for two years while Spurgeon is on his deathbed. You know what happens in those two years? The elders of the church talk to him. He gets water baptized. Believer's baptism at age about 60. What? Yes. He sees it in Scripture. He reckoned, This current caused such an incredible stir in the Presbyterian denomination, by the way. But I want to ask you, before he was baptized, was he saved? Of course he was. He proclaimed the gospel. He preached 10 sermons on John 3.16. John 3.16, 10 different sermons. He knew the word. He proclaimed it. God used him mightily in his day. He... He was a believer before he was water baptized into Jesus' name at age 60 and after. You see, 
the question cannot be whether they were baptized by John or, or under Apollos, they had been baptized in the baptism of repentance, whenever they were. Paul speaks to them, their disciples. He's wanting to know if they have been baptized in the Spirit. And so what he does then is he proceeds to baptize them into the name of Jesus. So the question then is, were they water baptized before receiving the Spirit, or were they water baptized after they received the Spirit? And we would have to say, well, they were baptized in water before they received the Spirit. Did Paul pray over them? He very well may have, but the text doesn't tell us, so I'm going to leave this block empty. Does he lay hands on them? He absolutely does. So I'm going to check that one off. We come to delay. I believe Luke's very intention is to clearly tell us they were Christians before true Christians, regenerated Christians. The Spirit of God, to use Paul's terminology, they had been regenerated. Paul encounters them And his one concern is, have you been empowered by the Spirit? But he uses Luke's term, just like he does in in Galatians 3, 5. It's not like this is an alien term to him for the reception, for the baptism in the Spirit. And he asks, did you receive the Spirit? Have you been immersed in the Spirit? Have you been empowered by the Spirit? There is a delay here. And they're going to talk about the evidence in just one moment. Can I just say this? And, And again, my point isn't to just prove something today. My point is to be able to offer you what Luke's intention is. This experience as believers, church, is for you today. It is for you. It may not have happened to you when you were first converted. We just discovered it was not the case for the Samaritans. Paul gave his heart to Christ. Three days later, he was filled with the Spirit. And these Samaritans, excuse me, these Ephesian disciples, they were Christians. And then later, they received the Spirit. Paul, that he, I, I want to just offer this scenario to you. If I believe that the Spirit is always given, the empowerment of the Spirit as well, at conversion, if I believe that, and I'm looking at the text, Can I believe that? Let's look at this very last step, the very last one here. Paul baptizes them in water, and then he lays hands on them, and they receive the Spirit. So here's my question to you. Did Paul baptize unconverted men? He most certainly did not. He baptized these men in water, and they had already believed in Jesus. And if I'm going to say that's when you're baptized in the Spirit, always at conversion, guess what happened before they were baptized in water? They were baptized in the Spirit. But is that what the text tells us? It wasn't until after they were water baptized. I don't care how Paul did it. Maybe he had them, all 12 of them line up, and he just went at one after the other and baptized one after the other, and then he went back and he laid hands on the first one, and as soon as he laid hands on them, maybe he prayed too, Luke doesn't tell us, they received the Spirit one after the other, one after the other. How long does that take? Maybe he baptized them and then laid hands on them and then they received the Spirit, went to the next one, baptized them, received, I don't care how you look at it, 
The Spirit was received well after they were converted. Hours, possibly. We don't know. And even regardless of our position, we would have to say there is some measure of delay. My point is simply this. When Paul lays hands on them, church, that is when the Spirit falls on them. That is when they are empowered by the Spirit, and they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. They speak in tongues, it says, and they prophesy. Let me, here, here I am, okay. The point I'm making here is that when we receive the Spirit, He wants to manifest Himself in your life. If you've been baptized in the Spirit, today the Spirit wants to manifest Himself in your life. That is what He longs to do. That is what happens when we, by faith, we receive Him. By faith today, as I walk in faith he, he pours out his spirit even upon you today and works miracles upon, through you today. What did they do? They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Why? Because that is what the spirit longs to do in every, every person that, is, that has been baptized in the spirit. I'm going to look at this a little bit more next week, what it means to be filled with the Spirit and refilled with the Spirit and refilled again. Here is a gentleman, I already mentioned him, Charles Spurgeon. He pastored probably the largest church in his day at the end of the 1800s. I cannot say to you that he believed in speaking in tongues were for today, but he did believe in the power of the Spirit. And this is so interesting. God is able to even look beyond that. Because I would never want to say that Charles Spurgeon was not empowered by the Spirit. I don't know if he ever asked for it or not. At some point in his life, I guarantee you, whether he believed that all the gifts of the Spirit were for today or not, regardless, I am sure that he cried out to God to fill him and anoint him with the Spirit, and God did that. And God used him mightily in his day. Whether he would accept this or not, it, it doesn't matter. To, to be baptized in the Spirit, you don't have to accept all of this. You, you have to, you're crying out to God and saying, I want more of you, Jesus. I want more of your Spirit. I don't care about this life. I want to follow you. I want to be filled with your Spirit to be used by you. And I know for sure that that was the heart of Charles Spurgeon. I'm sharing that with you because I want to share a story with you. It says, while preaching in the hall on one occasion, this is Spurgeon. I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd. Mm. and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence, and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Now, let's just get something straight here. I don't know if, if Spurgeon was a Sabbatarian or not. I don't know his beliefs on the Sabbath. But this man was an unregenerated man. You're going to find that out in a moment. And he chose to make money on Sunday rather than to have anything to do with God. This man did not care about God. He was all about business. And this, not whether he kept the Sabbath as Spurgeon thinks you should, he exchanged a passion for God for, with money. That is his point here. 
That's why he says that he was sold out to Satan for four pence. The man was about money rather than God. A city missionary, when going his rounds, met with this man, and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, the man, the shoemaker, he asked the question, the missionary asked the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man, the shoemaker that is. I have every reason to know him. I have been to hear him and under his preaching, by God's grace, I have become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall and took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me and, his sermon, and in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I, I should not have minded that. But he also said that I took nine pence that Sunday before and that there was four pence profit. And how he should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that if it was God who had spoken to my soul through him, so I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. And I'm sharing this with you because even in a man unlikely to prophesy, Spurgeon did something like this, he says, on at least 12 occasions. That's more than I've ever done. And I believe in the baptism of the Spirit very ardently. And here's a man who would disagree with me, but regardless, he had cried out, no doubt, God anoint me, use me today by your Spirit. And God honored that. Church, I'm, I want to lay this challenge before you. If we are to be a spirit-empowered people, then we must cry out to God and say, God, please empty me of self and use me for your purposes and your purposes alone. So I'm just going to ask you today, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower? Are you pursuing him? Are you turning back? And if you're going to pursue him, I'm going to challenge you. Cry out to him that he would pour out his spirit upon you, that he would so anoint you with his spirit that he would use you. You don't have to be a pastor to be used like this. You can, be, you can just be plain old Joe in the pew or, or Mary or whoever, and God can use you and anoint you and give you prophetic words and give you insights and revelations, and God can use you in people's lives. God can speak to your heart just as he spoke to the people in the book of Acts, and he can use you with power as he used them. And so we're going to close in prayer right now. I'm going to have us dim the lights. I'm going to have us go ahead. We have communion this morning. And I just want to ask you, as I'm closing in prayer, can we just bring the children, some could go back and have the children come in. I don't know about you, I'm really hot right now. I don't know what temperature it is in here. But uh, if we could, for a moment, if we could kill this like this, close in prayer and let the Spirit of God minister to your heart right now. Could you do that? Could you allow the Spirit of God to search your heart Maybe with my first question, that threw you. Are you a disciple of Jesus? And to be really honest, you would have to say you do not follow him. I give you the opportunity right now. We're about to have communion. 
And the scriptures are clear. Only those who are followers of Jesus are invited to the table. So I invite you to follow Jesus today. ask you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, if we have strayed from you, call us back to Jesus right now, Lord, and impress these truths on us. Make us hungry for you, God. Deal with our hearts right now, God. Deal with this waywardness right now, God, please, in Jesus' name. Father, I ask that those, they've been listening to the preaching of your word this morning and there's a a hunger and a desiring and a longing for this power of the spirit to be able to be used to impact this generation. God, would you pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, right now for those who have received this power and they're just feeling weary, weary, re-empower them, God, and pour out your spirit again and again, receiving over and over the spirit that empowers and stirs us to long for you, God, and follow you and, and, and Father, even to lay hands on the sick to see them healed. To share Christ and have people respond and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus too. God, please. Please empower us, God. We cannot accomplish this daunting task of winning the world to you. They're dead. They're lost. Spirit of God, pour out your grace. Grace. 